So welcome everybody to the session on Saturday the 27th of July 2019. <clears throat> I thought we'd start today this afternoon with some practices techniques called dharanas d-h-a-r-a-n-a -A -A, dharana actually dharana because it's aspirated in the technical sanskrit pronunciation these come from a, a eighth century text called the vinyara bhairava which is a tantric text that originated in kashmir which is actually one of the most physically phenomenal places beautiful places in the world at that time there was a lot of um, intellectual inquiry around all these questions of the nature of consciousness and uh, the nature of mind and causes and solutions to the problems of human suffering and there were actually two schools main schools of philosophical debate one was the Buddhists the very early Buddhists and one was the Shaivites followers of Shiva and in fact they were on parallel paths of inquiry but there were subtle points of difference and so it was a time of great intellectual um, activity as these different schools would go and debate each other and argue for their specific view of consciousness uh, and as a result of this intellectual inquiry great works of, of uh, yoga emerged that were documented because by this time they were actually documenting the practices prior to that in the thousands of years before the uh, yoga techniques and philosophies were all being communicated orally through the oral tradition and that's when you hear the ancient chanting sanskrit chanting and the buddhist chanting a lot of those are the very early um, texts but they weren't actually yet put down as text and so they would remember these vast tracts and in fact in sanskrit the pronunciation is critical to the um, encapsulation of the meaning and so it was a huge enterprise to train someone to be learned in these scriptures and these techniques anyway by the time they got to Kashmir there was you can imagine like it was almost like a university town back then and that was the main area of intellectual inquiry was around these philosophical debates and in fact there is some evidence that there was some cross-fertilization with these groups but prior to that so 8th century AD prior to that with um, the philosophers in ancient Greece so there was actually evidence of cross-fertilization that there were apparently Buddhist monks in the court of um, Alexander and Philip of Macedon and Socrates and Plato and so Plato in Plato's works there's a lot of references to reincarnation so you can see that we, we regard these as separate cultures but back then there was trade between these regions and also with trade came ideas were spreading so it's fascinating to explore the history of that I'm no expert in it but from what I know I get very excited when you see that different traditions are actually uh, feeding ideas to each other and and uh, from that you get great works like this now this one was written by uh, Abhinava Gupta who was a very very he was sort of like the Leonardo da Vinci of his time in the sense that he was a poly uh, he was uh, skilled in many areas beyond just um, philosophy and he was also very lightly an enlightened being and in fact he was so powerful an individual that the members of his household became his disciples everyone that was around him were all part of the group and it was basically this tremendous um, he had a gravitational attraction because of the power of his own practice and techniques anyway he uh, began to document a lot of the earlier techniques into a, a single work called the Vinara Bhairava and there are 112 specific techniques that he puts down and 
each one is a doorway into a state of expanded consciousness. So each technique is arguably, you could say, a yoga in its own right, since each one is directed towards helping the individual achieve a state of union with, um, I don't know, the cosmic cosmic consciousness. So the individual and the and the absolute merge, and the ego falls away. So these are all techniques that are designed to take you outside outside of the limitations of mind. If I can use modern language, that's essentially what they're doing. And as we know from our previous discussions, most of the suffering that we face in the world, whether we've got issues with anger or stress or um, fear or w whatever it is that plagues the modern, anxiety is a huge one these days. Whatever it is, and these are not new conditions, but certainly they feel very prevalent now because we're living within them. But all of these things are all basically just conditions of mind, aren't they? And you boil it all down. You know, hell is what's happening in your head. Potentially heaven as well, if you can, you know, get through the, the bad parts. I mean, really your entire life is being experienced through your perceptions and through your thoughts. And so what these techniques are designed to do is to transport you, to catapult you outside of the limited frame of thinking into much more transcendent states of experience that are not conditioned, conditional on thoughts. And this is, you know, when we meditate and we go into that deep state, the thoughts fall away and we just feel an amazing spaciousness, don't we? And a sense of freedom. And so why there's 112 is because as with all the different schools of yoga they recognize that different personalities different temperaments respond differently to different approaches and so some of these techniques are very visual they require visualization some people are great at visualizing and other people find it impossible and so you've basically got a smorgasbord of different techniques that you can play with and, and it's designed to be fun and something that we can experiment with as i say to give some variety to your practice and to keep it you know interesting and all of these techniques um, will strengthen the core practice that you do because they're all designed to forge and uh, the pathway back into that state of inner stillness um, <clears throat> what's really cool about them is and this is the approach of Tantra generally as a school of, uh, of yoga, of, of uh, philosophy, is that they do not deny the senses. They do not deny human experience. So some schools of yoga are very austere and they require you to undergo deprivation of some kind and denial of basic tendencies and instincts. Um, you know, extreme schools will require you to fast or to, you know, stand in the sun for 12 hours. You know, all that. All, you know, the, if you've been to India and you see yogis doing all this extreme stuff, that's that's sort of one school and or one group. The agoris that are into that as well. So a lot of it's really denial of the of the flesh, as it were. Tantra goes the other way, and it says, and and it's very interesting to note that Abhinava Gupta who was the author of this text, was a householder. He wasn't a yogi living in a cave. He was living in a community. He had wives. I think he had many wives, actually, <laughs> and concubines. And, and, he was, um, and he was a very active member of the community. And so he recognized that for most people, you can't give them yogic techniques that are going to turn them into recluses. And, I mean, that is a danger if you, if you want to go so deep into this meditation. I've found at times if I over meditate, let's say I become very uh, disengaged. Have you ever found that? That you, you feel so chilled out that you just don't feel like you need to do anything. And that's fabulous for a limited time. But if you, if you have a life to lead and duties to fulfill, um, it's a little bit of a tension there between those practices that are going to space you out and make you very uh, detached versus the everyday practical needs. 
But what Abhinava Gupta has done is said, okay, let's start with the things that are available to us. So we don't have to go and sit in a cave. We can actually go and utilize everyday objects and experience and use that as a pathway back into the same state that you will get to through meditation, but with by embracing the senses. This is a tantric approach. You embrace what you have around you. You embrace pleasurable things like food or music, um, sex. I mean, you've all heard of tantric sex. But that's only one very small aspect of this, but that's, the approach is the same, that you take an everyday experience and you use it as a springboard to move beyond mind into a, an absolute expanded state of consciousness. That's essentially the approach that they take. And so, have you been here when we've done the, the um, meditation with chocolate? you done that one? Yeah. I don't know if you guys have done that. And then, good. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> oh, maybe we'll do it next, next time. We'll, I think yeah, people brought chocolate, so if you want to bring your favourite chocolate, and I'll show you a completely different way to eat chocolate that is not only uh, more pleasurable, it intensifies the experience, which is the first thing because it's a very mindful way of experiencing the, the, the uh, taste. But what you then do, and we'll, we'll be doing it with these practices if we do a couple now, is you then use the pleasure to catapult consciousness beyond even the stimulus, beyond the chocolate, into another state, which we can call a transcendent state, which is where mind and the senses completely fall away it's sort of like if you were in, on a, a slingshot and you get catapulted into space. So there is the initial drive and the acceleration and the impetus, but then eventually when you're delivered into the wild, wild blue yonder, you just drop all effort and you're just flying. That's the kind of idea that we're going to use for this. Okay, Does that sound like fun? I love doing I first learnt these in the 70s. You, you were around then too. We had teachers that would come from America and India and they'd sit down and we'd do these all afternoon, one after the other. Who wants to do another Dharana? And everyone would go, yes, and so we'd find another one. Um, we could do a music one. Okay. We need to find some beautiful music. Can you find some stringed music? Yeah. Something instrumental? So the basic idea with the music one, I'll read the dharana first. It says, um, I won't subject you to my bad Sanskrit pronunciation, but the English translation is, if one listens with undivided attention to the sounds of stringed and other musical instruments, which on account of their uninterrupted succession are prolonged. So in other words, what you're saying is you're following the sounds. You're tracking the sounds with your awareness. That's why probably something slow and, and string-like would be good. Then he, at the end, uh, he will be, at the end, absorbed in the ether of consciousness. This idea of just floating ether, like space of consciousness. So you get the idea? So the idea is that you start with a musical sound, and I suppose this would be very similar to what we would normally do if, um, I don't know if you're into classical music, but you know, sometimes, or it could be any music really, but you sit there with your headphones and you just completely lose yourself in the music. So we're, we're already familiar with that process, but what we're doing here is we're doing it in a much more conscious way, with intention. And we're going to go beyond the music. This is the point, is that the music is the catalyst, but it's not the goal. It's the, it's the trigger, but it's not the final state. Okay, so have you got that? Have we got some music? So the idea is you close your eyes. And you, basically the first thing is you just apply undivided attention to the sounds.
and then the idea is you then follow them in, you follow them as they prolong. So you actually allow them to carry you, as it were. You feel yourself being carried into a sort of a, a blissful state. So you're allowing the awareness to ride on lightly on the music. And you feel a sense of exaltation, of expansion. Now, if we can turn the volume down, down to almost zero. Remain with that sense of expansion. So hold that sense of spaciousness that you should feel it now. And then if we turn the sound right off, you should get a sense of almost approaching a meditative state. But the music has sort of displaced the thoughts. You've used the energy of the music to move beyond mind. And then you're just sitting there in a very spacious state of awareness where nothing is a problem. And if we allowed you to just stay like this, you would eventually go into a deeper meditative state. Okay, now you can come back to the room. These things take practice, but did you get a sense of what we were talking about? You feel like you've almost been meditating when you come back. So we're using the sound of the music. So what do we actually do if we deconstruct that? What we did was we actually, this is a very clever trick actually, technique or strategy, what he's saying is that you give first, the first point is you have to give your undivided attention to the object, in this case, the music. So because we know from our own experience that we can only be aware of one thing at a time, if you're, if you're mindful or attentive to the, to, to, to awareness, awareness can really only be with one thing at a time. Sometimes it seems like you're aware of a lot of things at a time, but what's really happening is that it's changing in quick succession. But if you can hold the awareness on one thing, and as, let's say be aware of the candle, give it your complete awareness. You feel how the awareness just locks onto the flame? And then if I said, well, were you aware of your feet? You know, you wouldn't, because the awareness is just on that. So in the same way with the music, when the awareness locks into the music, it displaces the awareness of all other things, including thoughts. So that's phase one, essentially, of the practice, is it's a displacement technique that's pushing aside all the thoughts. Now, stage two is almost like an energetic um, shift occurs so that you are moving into the power of the music itself. Aren't you following me? So we, we've displaced the thoughts and now we're just moving with the energy of the music. And then he says that you, you follow it. Um, it's, it's not really a great translation, which on account of their uninterrupted succession are prolonged. So this is the sounds of the string. They're prolonged. And the idea is, remember when we do the mantra technique, that we follow the mantra into the stillness? That's what we're doing with this. But instead of using the mantra, we're using the sound of the stringed instruments. And we're following them back into the stillness. And of course, there'll be another sound and another sound, and so you'll just be repeating that as the sounds go. Do you want to try it again with the music? We'll see if you can get back into the state.
Can you find it? Okay, so eyes are closed. So the prolonging now is the thing you want to go with. So you notice each note will actually arise, persist, and then fade. And you're just allowing it to carry you into a deep state of I like the word exaltation or joy. Strictly though, we're not really following joy in this practice. We're really just following the sounds to their to their conclusion. So just following them. And then the idea is that, that, that the, at the end of this practice, you will be absorbed in the ether of consciousness. So you feel yourself getting carried into another state that is free, very free. You're basically surrendering all effort, all resistance. And then we can turn the music down, and you're just gonna you're just gonna land or stay with what you, what remains. Okay, and there it is. Okay, and then you can come back again. Now, if you didn't think you were doing it. The test is how do you feel right now when you come back out and you'll feel that there's been a shift. That's the key. It's not really that you're in there and you're thinking, am I doing it right? It's not really happening. All of those thoughts might be there. The, the test is what happens right when you come out of it and then you'll feel almost like you've come out of a meditation. And that's the proof that it was actually working. Okay, and then, I, I mean, another way that maybe that music isn't the best to start with. There's another, we won't do it now, but you could take a single stringed instrument. That's probably a better way. And you just, if you hear the sound of a guitar being plucked and you follow the sound all the way, all the way into nothing, that might be a better approach, but it'll give you the same result. Okay, so that's the first one. Was that fun? Want to try another one? We don't have chocolate, so we can't do that one. You understanding the, the idea here, what we're doing? Using senses to move outside of mind? Okay, here's another good one. Alright, well this is, this is pretty, this is pretty abstruse, but you can try it and see how you go. Okay, so the idea is, do you know about Shiva? Do you know who Shiva is? It's a powerful Hindu god that is the destroyer. I don't think I've got a picture of him, but um, he's the one with the eye. He's got the third eye upwards, and he's um, 
sitting there and he's got cobras around his neck and he's a beautiful radiant being and his hair is in long and in a top knot you've probably seen the image and um, I might be able to find it on my phone and then the idea is Shiva among his many qualities is basically the perfect yogi he's completely detached all-powerful creator of the universe it's, these are all metaphors remember we're not saying you have to become a Hindu this the idea is that you, you you're um, using this as a metaphor for a state of consciousness where you can imagine this being and, and actually ultimately the idea is that you are that that you are that being yourself but that but to get to that you start with the external and so we'll find a nice picture uh, here we go because remember I said that one of the philosophical schools is was Buddhism but the other one was Shaivism Shaivites are the followers of Shiva Shiva is the cosmic principle that existed before the universe it was that which came before creation and out of which creation emerged so it's this concept of um, the primordial being you could say now let's see if I can find a photo of it because what you're going to do is you're going to visualize here we go alright let's find a good one that's not bad alright can you see that? Does that have you seen that before? Alright, so the idea is that it's this cosmic being has got four arms. He's, uh, this uh, mudra here is the Abhaya mudra, so that's giving you protection. And then he's carrying the conch shell, the drum, the dhammaru, which is a little double-headed drum. And then his uh, fourth arm is in the meditative posture. And then he's got cobras, serpents around his neck. So that's meant to demonstrate his fearless detachment, right? And look at his his eyes are half closed. So he's in it. You can see from the expression on his face that he's in a very transcendent state, very great yogic state of detachment. And the third eye there is closed at the moment, but that is the all-knowing eye. So that implies omniscience. So here we've got this very cosmic being. Okay, and this is the object of this. Dharana and what they're saying is now remember this was created for Shaivite so the idea is that you develop devotion for this this being and and you uh, you're really um, acknowledging that there is this um, this metaphorical being that is so powerful and so detached and so the idea is that you then um, contemplate his detachment. Do you follow that? So you are. So if you close your eyes, one way to do it, actually a really great way, and I think it's sort of implied here, is that you visualize yourself as she, as that being. All right. So you're sitting there, and you are in that state where you've got cobras around your neck, but you have no fear of them, and you are in a very detached state. So you feel, you, basically what it's asking you to do is feel yourself as if you were in that state. This is using a little bit of visualization and imagination. So, and the actual words are, one should contemplate on it perpetually, he then becomes Shiva himself. So essentially what they're saying is you take on the attributes of that which you contemplate. So there you are, sitting in a perfect lotus posture. You're all-powerful, indestructible, all-knowing, and completely detached 
in other words, impervious to anything that can be thrown at you, anything that would you would confront. And then you allow that feeling to intensify. And you basically accept and acknowledge yourself as that, as invincible. And you feel that sensation, that feeling rise up in you. And then you just embrace and own it. And then we can come back. Was that easy or difficult? Do you get a sense of it? You feel a little more invincible now? Do you? I mean, do you get a sense of what we're talking about? Is it basically what, what it's, it's, it's basically the technique is that you are um, visualizing that which you want to become. And we use that in everyday life. I mean, if you're using um, positive thinking and visualization, affirmation, it's essentially the same dynamic. But what we're using here is a figure, an actual figure. Uh, probably it would be more meaningful if you came out, out of the, Indo the Indian culture. But, you know, we've been to India a bit, so for us it's pretty easy to, to relate to this. If it still feels very foreign for you, well, that could be a bit of a stretch. But the idea is that you at least um, are... allowing yourself momentarily for the duration of the practice to embrace a more expansive um, powerful aspect of yourself we could say it like that that's essentially what we're doing and by projecting awareness into that state and holding it when you come out you feel a little more powerful a little more detached that's the idea of that dharma. See, some people will have difficulty with that, but Abhinava Gupta has already um, allowed for that by giving you another. We've done one, and that was the second. We've got another 110 that we can work through. So let's try one more. I'm trying to give you a nice diversity here so you can see that it works through visualization, through sound. Now what have we got? Well, we use we do this one quite a bit. This is the um, if if in one's body, one contemplates over shunya, the void, or spatial vacuity, emptiness, in all directions simultaneously, without any thought construct. He experiences vacuity, spaciousness all around and is identified with the vast expanse of consciousness. So that's a very clumsy translation, but basically what they're saying is... that you're contemplating... that you're in a great state of spaciousness, surrounded in, in space, effectively, let's just say, floating in space, without any thought construct. Alright, so you close the eyes, and the idea is that you're, you're trying to contemplate, and this is where the mind will give up because it's too difficult to do it with thought, but the idea is that you contemplate all the space around you at once. In all directions, without succession. In other words, not moving from one to the next to the next, but holding it all as floating in space. And then I would go one more and say, become the space, be that spaciousness.
If thoughts come, you just return to the awareness of space in all directions simultaneously. Remember, no thought construct. This is an experience. This is just using uh, imagination to encounter space. And then you merge with the space. Drop the effort, just relax. And feel what it feels like to be space, to be empty. And if we were to continue, you would go deeper into this state and eventually you'd be meditating. You feel that? The spaciousness that you are space? Sometimes we do this by imagining that the body is empty as well, it's hollow, so that you're filled with space, space on the inside and space on the outside, and then you just merge the two. That's another way of doing it. Space within space. Okay, and then you can come back again. And again, the test is, how do you feel when you emerge? Has there been a shift? Where is mind now? You feel pretty spaced out? That's really good. It's a powerful one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Good? You get that one? See how some are easier and some are harder? Because of the way we are. Yeah, I found that one very powerful. Actually feel, do you still feel like your space? And it had to open my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get that one, Simon? A taste? I've got a taste of it. Yeah. Did thoughts come, come were they there still? Was that what was happening? Or were you okay to release the thought? Well, I still had thoughts of that one. Yeah. So the other ones work for you a bit better? Yeah. Cool. Honestly, that proves the point. That's why we got so many. And you got something out of that one? And Jan? Uh, I'm tired, so it was just making me... You're just spaced tired. out, generally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's three Dharanas. So you get a sense of what this is all about. This is like... And, and, and here's the key point. And you should be able to answer this question easily. What did you notice about all three, ultimately? It takes, helps you displace that idea of your smaller self and it takes you out of that yep. to something that's entirely possible, um, a, greater, a greater awareness. Like greater like sense of you, of yeah. who you, of being? Like beyond the concept of who you think you are. Right. So where was ego, in other words? It's not there, right? Yeah. So ego is not there. It can't, it can't be sustained. This limited concept. This is what the practices are inviting us to drop the limited concept of I. 
the little I. And they're inviting us to embrace the bigger concept of I as just consciousness. That's what they're all, they're all doing. But there's another answer to the question too. What did you notice about all three? It sticks your mind, so it makes you focus on something at the same time as stopping you from thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so again, this is what Tantra does. It takes experience, it takes senses, it doesn't deny it. It doesn't say, stop your thoughts right now. It says, here's something else to think about. And then you move through that into the other state. Right? But the other answer I was looking for um, is that all these dharanas lead to the same state. That's kind of what you were saying. But they all lead to stillness. That's the key. That You can imagine a building with doors, multiple doors. Let's say a circular building with 112 doors. And inside the building is just emptiness. Bliss, emptiness love, whatever you want to describe as being the ultimate state, these are all just different doorways into the same state. It's what people are trying to get in their external life, right. in their real life. They're always trying to find the freedom from thought, the stillness, the bliss, the love, through all of the worldly pursuits. Yeah, but the, I guess the difference is fundamental difference is to yoga you know what boga is you've ever heard of boga so you got yoga and you got boga you can it, imagine what boga yeah <laughs> it's actually a sanskrit word i think it's b-h-o-g-a yeah. so you got yoga and boga boga is looking for that the same joy through worldly things through possessions or reputation or all that stuff that what you were just saying yeah. So these people are bogies, and we're yogis, and we're all looking for the same thing. But what we're doing is we're going direct to we're going direct to the source, without reliance on the external objects. Except as if you're doing it as a tantric thing, as a catalyst, but recognizing that that those things are only catalysts. They're not the the goal. They're not the ultimate state. The ultimate state is the bliss. We all want the bliss. Everyone's in it for the bliss. The joy's not in the chocolate, the joy's in you. Correct. Yeah. So these are doorways. They're not the, you have to go through the doorway mm. to get to the ultimate state. You can't just stay with your hand on the doorknob or you'll never, you'll never move into, the, into where you're really trying to get to. And, the, and this, is the, this is the folly, the foolishness that the bogey encounters is that they mistake the object of experience for the state that they're seeking and they they start to believe the mythology that it's in the object but you know Isn't that what most people do, is that yeah that's yeah. what everyone does exactly. and that's how we're conditioned to think mm. that if you turn the TV on and you're watching advertising every single ad that, that has ever been created is designed to create within you an idea that you must have something in order to be happy. Buy this car, go on this holiday. Um, I don't know, I don't watch advertising much anymore. But you can imagine what, what we're talking about is that from childhood we're conditioned to believe that the, that the goal is the object. And that's where the wheels start to fall off. Or the object could be the relationship, right? Or it could be the promotion, or it could be the positive opinion of somebody else. You see what I'm saying? I mean, we all know, we can see the truth in this. I mean, it's like we've all been around long enough to know that that's what people, that's what we've been doing, that's what people have been doing. But we also know, or we wouldn't be here, that there's got to be more to it than that. Eventually, you get tired of banging your head against the wall and following strategies that are not actually working. Because if the answer was more money or more possessions or more relationships or whatever it would be, then the people that had all those things should be much happier than anyone else. The celebrities should be the people with unlimited money and fame and success and all the things that everyone is aspiring to should theoretically be the happiest people in our society. And yet, is that what we observe? 
we observe that they're drained of their energy. We observe the opposite mm. often. That yeah, having, having achieved everything that they, they were striving to achieve, suddenly they're miserable because it wasn't that. They thought it was that. They invested their whole life in pursuing a goal that ultimately was, uh, couldn't deliver them what they thought. And when we were in America with our teacher and in India, there were so many celebrities knocking around. I think Stevie Wonder used to show up and different people. And these were all people, movie stars and all that when we were in LA. And, and I'm thinking, well, that was, I was like 21 at the time. And it's a great education for a young person to see that all the people, and sportsmen as well, business people, all these people are at the top of their game and they're all looking for something more. And that's when the penny starts to drop that it can't be those things. Otherwise, why would they be sitting on, on the floor at the feet of a, a guru? Because they all want the, they want the real secret. That other thing that they thought was going to be the solution didn't deliver. And in fact, um, do you hear stories about people that win the lotto and they end up committing suicide or their relationships break down. It's a very common thing. And if you win lotto now in Australia, I, I assume New South Wales, definitely, because I know they, they require it, you have to go and do a counselling session with, with financial, I think they're financial counsellors, but they want to make sure that you're going to manage the winnings properly before they'll give you the money. Because there have been that many cases of suicides. There's, there's, uh, you can Google it and look at the, the psycho psychological studies on this. That the number of people, that their lives completely fall apart when they win lotto. Their kids become estranged from them. I mean, John, a friend of mine that um, lives in Angadonga, uh, went to school with a woman and she just won $30 million a few years ago. And um, she didn't tell anyone, but she told him. And he goes, well, how's your life? And she goes, I don't know what to, I don't know what's happened, but my husband locked himself in the room and he's steadily drinking himself to death. The children won't talk to us because they don't think we're spending enough money on them. Um, this woman would, uh, because they've never had any money all their life, she's fearful of spending the money. She, she catches the bus everywhere and once a week she treats herself to a cappuccino or something. And meanwhile, she's invested in a block of units and it's delivering $65,000 worth of rent a week. And that's not even touching the principal. So that, that's an actual case that I'm aware of. of someone. So, but if you look at the advertising, it's the low life. You know, so this, this underlines the point of what we're saying here is that don't believe the mythology. I'm not saying money's bad at all. Money can be tremendous. It's a power that can be used for good. But don't believe that that's the thing that's going to give you happiness. There's enough unhappy millionaires in the world to prove that fact. But the irony is, and coming back to these texts, is that what Abhinavagupta and the, the ancient teachers were saying is, all the bliss that you can handle is already there. you just got to know the right way to find it. And here's 112 techniques to get you started. <laughs> so there you go. Was that... That's uplifting, isn't it? Sudden, you're free now. You're off the hook. You can abandon all the other uh, strategies that you were pursuing. In, That's in, not to say you don't go and do them. You can do them, do. but but by the, but if you want happy, if if what you're really after is happiness, peace of mind, uh, ability to sleep at night. Um, what else? What are our main objectives here? Satis fulfillment. Peace, yeah. Well, good news is you can have it right now. It's right there. Isn't that cool? Why didn't they tell us that when we were like eight years old? <laughs> hey, kids, we got some great news for you. You can do you can do anything at all or nothing, and you can still be perfectly happy. Many people, as a child, were told they start as a sinner. Yeah, that's that's you are true. A yeah, yeah, I know. And it's the opposite is true that there's total perfection there. Yeah. See, look at an animal. Animals are in a natural state of just being. They're not trying to be anything. 
I mean, there's a lot that we do that animals don't do. But by and large, if you look at an animal or a tree or anything in that, you've worked with horses, right? I mean, they're in a natural state of just being real. They're not pursuing any agenda. Food. Food. Okay, basic survival things, yeah. But beyond that, I mean, you look at the cows on the way to... Narawali, right? I'm always looking at those cows. I love cows for some reason. I've worked with them before, actually, when I was doing egg science, and, and they are a very contented animal. A cow is a very contented animal. Chews its cud, and, you know. And I'm thinking, well, now look, those cows, unfortunately, at the end of their life, they're going to be in the abattoir. But they don't know that yet. And for, in fact, 99% of their lifetime, they're just out in a field chewing grass, being in the sun. So things in their natural state are naturally pretty much in harmony and happy. This is my observation. Same with take him down the beach and he's just in bliss. There's nothing, nothing else required. What we're saying is that we can have that too. But we put all these barriers in front of ourselves, hurdles that say we must first do this and we must first do that and we must first do that. But what if we could drop that? Still do those things if you want to, but recognize that what you're seeking, you already have. We just, we just lost our way for a while. And so there's another really good work uh, related to this, uh, like a uh, sister publication, you could say, called the... Uh, Pratnya Bhignya Hridayam, which is the uh, Pratnya Bhignya Hridayam. It's something like the Sacred Heart of Shiva or something. And basically what it's saying is, it's the doctrine of recognition. Recognition of what is already there. This is the idea, that this is the Tantric, the Shaivite approach, is to say, it's already there. Fully, right now. And the, the doctrine is the teaching is not, it's not the doctrine of becoming what you are not. That's what we believe. It's the doctrine of recognizing what you already are. That's the difference. Subtle but powerful difference. Recognize what you already are. What is that? In that deeper state that we experience, what does that feel like to you? What did you just feel before? Yeah, it's happiness. Yeah. <laughs> All those things. And you can get a glimpse of it in external means, but it's only a tiny glimpse. Mm. And so as your meditation practice increases over time, if you're practicing as you should be every day and strengthening that capacity, to return to the state, a really amazing thing begins to happen. The state gets deeper and more powerful. And the bliss and the peace become more powerful, completely immersive. There's an exhilaration, isn't there, in the deepest states that you get supercharged because suddenly you are going right. The closer you get to the source, Imagine if you're walking into a nuclear reactor, if you weren't worried about being fried. The closer you get to the source, the more powerful it becomes. That's the state. You can imagine it as a, they talk about the jewel in the heart center or whatever you want to imagine that as being. Or that the heart at the center of the emptiness or whatever concept you want to hold of that. But the idea is that as that state gets deeper, your experience becomes more profound and what's even better is that when you come out it remains with you for longer and eventually the binary state of either being in or not in starts to break down the duality of being either in or not in starts to completely dissolve and then the experience is that you're just permanently in a state of peace and joy that's the key so that's what we're working towards here 
Remember I give you that example of when we're dyeing fabric, we've got a pot of dye and we've got some white cloth and we're immersing it in the dye and each time we immerse it in the, the cloth begins to take on the colour of the dye and eventually the colour of the cloth and the colour of the dye are the same. So the immersion is into this state of stillness and peace and joyfulness. And initially we're just going in, so you meditate for 20 minutes and you might, you know, feel it for a few minutes and then you come out and you'll feel good for an hour later or two hours later and then stuff will happen and gradually it will dissipate and then you'll be back to where you were. And then the next day you'll do it again. Do you right? think it's better to meditate in the morning or the evening? That's up to you. Most people prefer the morning because the mind is a little more quiet. But other people find that I find that evening is very powerful around sunset. There's actually four periods of the day. They say they're called Sunday points or junction points. Sunrise or actually half an hour before sunrise. Sunset. So we've got the night meets the day. So there's a junction point, the Sunday point. Day meets the night at sunset. That's another Sunday point. Uh, I don't know which way to go up or down. Noon, when the sun is at the highest point in the sky, is a power time to meditate. And midnight, if you don't mind not sleeping, is another power point. Those are the four power points. So ideally, if you're a yogi and you're trying to optimize everything, you'll meditate around each of those times. But if you're a regular person that has a regular life, then you will just notice how your mind is. What I'd say is, is your mind more active in the morning? My mind's actually super creative in the morning. So I often write, write stuff, get a lot of inspired ideas. I can then meditate after that, but I have to get the those things out first uh, but I find personally around sunset it, my mind gets really quiet and that's a really good time for me to meditate so you just have to know observe your own mind and see what feels right and then of course if none of those times are convenient then they would say or do it anytime you can mm -hmm. right so there's no real rules with this the more, more important thing, I would say, is regularity. It's more important than duration. It's more important than location. And it's more important than specific time of day. If, if you wanted to check all the boxes, then you would go one part of your house every day, one seat. We talked about that last week in the asana, where you sit. One place, because it, you sort of start to build up a little bit of a vibrational um, state, higher state of vibration in that. I mean, you know, if you walk into a church or somewhere powerful, you feel the energy of that. So you will create that field. It's a bit of an esoteric concept, but long-term meditators would agree. Same place, same time, ideally. And then in terms of duration, you'll want to eventually work to increasing the length of time that you meditate because the longer that you can, you'll go deeper. And to begin with, a good piece of advice is, let's say you're doing 20 minutes a day during the week. And let's say for you, Sunday mornings, the time where you don't have much on, then when you sit Sunday morning, close the door and meditate for 30 minutes or 40 minutes. Give yourself one time of the week where time's not an issue and just go, as, go for as long as you, you can. And then you, what you'll find is that that will, it's sort of like breaking new ground. It reduces the resistance to you meditating longer the, all the time. You see what I'm saying? So you just give a little bit of extra time one day a week and then gradually over time what will happen is your, your general everyday meditations will be deeper and they may go for longer and then you can start to increase your time 
every day, up to an hour. Up to an hour is good. But that might sound like a lot for you at the moment because you might think, you know, you don't have the time or you don't want to meditate for longer than that. That's okay. Do you find, here's a good question, do you find typically when you're meditating that at the end of the time you feel like you could have gone for longer? Or do you find that you will naturally come out at a certain time and you can't really push it beyond that? Or does it vary? I'm not very good at regular practice. So the, the answer, you don't have to answer me now, but if the answer to the question is that often you're feeling like you could go for longer, then that's a signal that you can probably go for a bit longer. If you feel like, you know, like when we just came out before and you said I could have just stayed in there. Mm. If you're feeling like that at the end of your meditations, my advice would be to add five or ten minutes to your sitting. Because you're, you're naturally being drawn deeper. It's naturally going to draw you deeper. And so you go with, don't resist that. Don't go, oh, but the time says, I mean, unless you've got to get to work. But let's say you've got an extra half an hour or an hour and you feel like you can go for longer and you want to, then you should go for longer. Because what I'm saying is that you will get into such profound, deep states by allowing that to happen that suddenly you'll realize why we're all so addicted to meditation. <laughs> because it is really, isn't it? It gets yes. phenomenal yes. in those deep states. It is important in the beginning to commit to a daily practice, even 10 minutes even 10 minutes, just a daily practice because something mysterious will happen after that. Mm. Cool. All right. So that should be a bit of inspiration for you. Okay, so I think we will stop the discussion at that point and we're going to meditate for, since we have time, why don't we try 25 minutes? All right, it's probably a little longer than what you're normally used to. But um, let's uh, start with an intention that we're going to just allow ourselves to go a little bit deeper today than we normally do. So you know how to do an intention? You just close your eyes and you just... You could just use one word. You could just say, deeper. Alright, and then you let that word drift into the ether or into the internal space and now you've created the intention and now I'll give you a little bit of a guided lead in and then we'll, I'll speak again in about 25 minutes so we're sitting comfortably upright in the chair if you need to support the back so that the head the neck and the lower back are in alignment. A nice, comfortable, upright posture will be more conducive to a deeper state of meditation. And we begin by bringing the awareness to the breath. As we did when we were following the sound of the music, now we follow the sound of the breath. Allowing the awareness to flow easily and in an uninterrupted way. With the incoming and outgoing breath. At this stage of the meditation, we're not necessarily using mantra just yet. We're just allowing the awareness to come to rest with the breath. As we allow everything to stabilize, all the internal systems,
not going to move into a state of relaxed, open awareness. In one tradition, they refer to this as the state of restful alertness. And once you feel the breath moving rhythmically and in a relaxed way, then you can become subtly aware of the sound of the mantra and just as we did with the music you follow the sound of the mantra into the stillness And then I'll speak again in about 20 minutes. <laughs> 